0: History of England, Chapter Nine, Part Five. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by John Leader, Bloomington, Illinois. History of England from the Accession of James II by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter Nine, Part Five. The disputes between the majority, which supported the Stadtholder, and the minority, headed by the magistrates of Amsterdam, had repeatedly run so high that bloodshed had seemed to be inevitable. On one occasion, the prince had attempted to bring the refractory deputies to punishment as traitors. On another occasion, the gates of Amsterdam had been barred against him, and troops had been raised to defend the privileges of the municipal council that the rulers of this great city would ever consent to an expedition offensive in the highest degree to Lewis, whom they courted, and likely to aggrandize the House of Orange which they abhorred, was not likely. Yet, without their consent, such an expedition could not legally be undertaken. To quell their opposition by main force was a course from which, in different circumstances, the resolute and daring Stadtholder would not have shrunk. But at that moment, it was most important that he should carefully avoid every act which could be represented as tyrannical. He could not venture to violate the fundamental laws of Holland at the very moment at which he was drawing the sword against his father-in-law for violating the fundamental laws of England. The violent subversion of one free constitution would have been a strange prelude to the violent restoration of another. There was yet another difficulty which has been too little noticed by English writers, but which was never for a moment absent from william's mind in the expedition which he meditated he could succeed only by appealing to the protestant feeling of england and by stimulating that feeling till it became for a time the dominant and almost the exclusive sentiment of the nation this would indeed have been a very simple course had the end of holler's politics been to effect a revolution in our island and to reign there but he had in view an ulterior end which could be attained only by the help of princes sincerely attached to the Church of Rome. He was desirous to unite the Empire, the Catholic King, and the Holy See with England and Holland in a league against the French ascendancy. It was therefore necessary that, while striking the greatest blow ever struck in defense of Protestantism, he should yet contrive not to lose the goodwill of governments which regarded Protestantism as a deadly heresy. Such were the complicated difficulties of this great undertaking. Continental statesmen saw a part of those difficulties, British statesmen another part. One capacious and powerful mind alone took them all in at one view, and determined to surmount them all. It was no easy thing to subvert the English government by means of a foreign army without galling the national pride of Englishmen. It was no easy thing to obtain from that Batavian faction which regarded France with partiality and the House of Orange with aversion a decision in favor of an expedition which would confound all the schemes of France and raise the House of Orange to the height of greatness. It was no easy thing to lead enthusiastic Protestants on a crusade against Popery with the good wishes of almost all Popish governments and of the Pope himself. Yet all these things William effected. All his objects, even those which appeared most incompatible with each other, he attained completely and at once. The whole history of ancient and of modern times records no other such triumph of statesmanship. The task would indeed have been too arduous even for such a statesman as the prince of Orange had not his chief adversaries been at this time smitten with an infatuation such as by many men not prone to superstition was ascribed to the special judgment of God. Not only was the King of England, as he had ever been, stupid and perverse, but even the counsel of the politic King of France was turned into foolishness. Whatever wisdom and energy could do, William did. Those obstacles which no wisdom or energy could have overcome, his enemies themselves studiously removed. On the great day on which the bishops were acquitted, and on which the invitation was dispatched to The Hague, James returned from Hounslow to Westminster in a gloomy and agitated mood. He made an effort that afternoon to appear cheerful, but the bonfires, the rockets, and above all the waxen popes who were blazing in every quarter of London were not likely to soothe him. Those who saw him on the morrow could easily read in his face and demeanour the violent emotions which agitated his mind. During some days he appeared so unwilling to talk about the trial that even berion could not venture to introduce the subject. Soon it began to be clear that defeat and mortification had only hardened the king's heart. The first words which he uttered when he learned that the object of his revenge had escaped him were so much the worse for them. In a few days these words, which he, according to his fashion, repeated many times, were fully explained. He blamed himself, not for having prosecuted the bishops, but for having prosecuted them before a tribunal where questions of fact were decided by juries, and where established principles of law could not be utterly disregarded even by the most servile judges. This error he determined to repair. Not only the seven prelates who had signed the petition, but the whole Anglican clergy should have reason to curse the day on which they had triumphed over their sovereign within a fortnight after the trial an order was made enjoining all chancellors of dioceses and all archdeacons to make a strict inquisition throughout their respective jurisdictions and to report to the high commission within five weeks the names of all such rectors vicars and curates as had omitted to read the declaration the king anticipated with delight the terror with which the offenders would learn that they were to be cited before a court which would give them no quarter. The number of culprits was little, if at all, short of ten thousand, and after what had passed at Magdalen College, every one of them might reasonably expect to be interdicted from all his spiritual functions, ejected from his benefice, declared incapable of holding any other preferment and charged with the costs of the proceedings which had reduced him to beggary. Such was the persecution with which James, smarting from his great defeat in Westminster Hall, resolved to harass the clergy. Meanwhile, he tried to show the lawyers, by a prompt and large distribution of rewards and punishments, that strenuous and unblushing servility, even when least successful, was a sure title to his favour, and that whoever after years of obsequiousness, ventured to deviate but for one moment into courage and honesty, was guilty of an unpardonable offence. The violence and audacity which the Apostate Williams had exhibited throughout the trial of the bishops had made him hateful to the whole nation. He was recompensed with a baronetcy. Holloway and Powell had raised their character by declaring that, in their judgment, the petition was no libel. They were dismissed from their situations. The fate of Wright seems to have been, during some time, in suspense. He had indeed summed up against the bishops, but he had suffered their counsel to question the dispensing power. He had pronounced the petition a libel, but he had carefully abstained from pronouncing the declaration legal, and, through the whole proceeding, his tone had been that of a man who remembered that a day of reckoning might come. He had indeed strong claims to indulgence, for it was hardly to be expected that any human impudence would hold out without flagging through such a task in the presence of such a bar and of such an auditory. The members of the Jesuitical cabal, however, blamed his want of spirit. The Chancellor pronounced him a beast, and it was generally believed that a new Chief Justice would be appointed. But no change was made it would indeed have been no easy matter to supply Wright's place. The many lawyers who were far superior to him in parts and learning were, with scarcely an exception, hostile to the designs of the government, and the very few lawyers who surpassed him in turpitude and effrontery were, with scarcely an exception, to be found only in the lowest ranks of the profession, and would have been incompetent to conduct the ordinary business of the court of King's Bench. Williams, it is true, "'united all the qualities which James regarded in a magistrate. "'But the services of Williams were needed at the bar, "'and, had he been moved thence, "'the crown would have been left without the help of any advocate, "'even of the third rate. "'Nothing had amazed or mortified the king "'more than the enthusiasm which the dissenters had shown "'in the cause of the bishops. "'Penn, who, though he had himself sacrificed wealth and honours "'to his conscientious scruples, Seems to have imagined that nobody but himself had a conscience, imputed the discontent of the Puritans to envy and dissatisfied ambition. They had not had their share of the benefits promised by the declaration of indulgence, none of them had been admitted to any high and honorable post, and therefore it was not strange that they were jealous of the Roman Catholics. Accordingly, within a week after the great verdict had been pronounced in Westminster Hall, Silas Titus, a noted Presbyterian, a vehement exclusionist, and a manager of Stafford's impeachment, was invited to occupy a seat in the Privy Council. He was one of the persons on whom the opposition had most confidently reckoned, but the honour now offered to him, and the hope of obtaining a large sum due to him from the Crown, overcame his virtue, and to the great disgust of all classes of Protestants, he was sworn in. The vindictive designs of the King against the Church were not accomplished. Almost all the archdeacons and diocesan chancellors refused to furnish the information which was required. The day on which it had been intended that the whole body of the priesthood should be summoned to answer for the crime of disobedience arrived. The High Commission met. It appeared that scarcely one ecclesiastical officer had sent up a return. At the same time, a paper of grave import was delivered to the board. It came from Spratt bishop of rochester during two years supported by the hope of an archbishopric he had been content to bear the reproach of persecuting that church which he was bound by every obligation of conscience and honour to defend but his hope had been disappointed he saw that unless he abjured his religion he had no chance of sitting on the metropolitan throne of york he was too good-natured to find any pleasure in tyranny and too discerning not to see the signs of the coming retribution. He therefore determined to resign his odious functions, and he communicated his determination to his colleagues in a letter written, like all his prose compositions, with great propriety and dignity of style. It was impossible, he said, that he could longer continue to be a member of the commission. He had himself, in obedience to the royal command, read the declaration. But he could not presume to condemn thousands of pious and loyal divines who had taken a different view of their duty; and since it was resolved to punish them for acting according to their conscience, he must declare that he would rather suffer with them than be accessory to their sufferings. The commissioners read, and stood aghast. The very faults of their colleague, the known laxity of his principles, the known meanness of his spirit, made his defection peculiarly alarming. A government must be indeed in danger when men like Spratt address it in the language of Hampton. The tribunal, lately so insolent, became on a sudden strangely tame. The ecclesiastical functionaries who had defied its authority were not even reprimanded. It was not thought safe to hint any suspicion that their disobedience had been intentional. They were merely enjoined to have their reports ready in four months. The commission then broke up in confusion. It had received a death blow. End of Part 5